Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I'm the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, we are in the stretch run here. Things are heating up in the playoff race. How's it going? How are you liking baseball lately? Uh, Yeah, some good races, and that's really the priority right now is watching these teams kind of fight it out for uh, the last couple of playoff spots. So it's been really good. Um, We're still a little early in terms of thinking about the offseason, although if your team is out of it, you may already be doing so. So we'll talk about that as we go. Yeah, certainly a tight race in the AL West, NL wild cards, a couple divisions that are already sorted out, but then you're watching things like the Acuna Betts MVP, just phenomenal race between those two. Yeah. Uh, tons to watch and perfect segue right here. Um, the teams gave us a little, a little treat, a little uh, <laughs> hearkening back to the days of the August 31st non-waiver trade deadline, or excuse me, waiver <laughs> trade deadline. Just like the old days. uh, Yeah, (laughs) kind of out of nowhere. It makes a lot of sense, but also we we didn't get anything like this last year or the year before quite to this extent. Um, I guess let's just just start with the Angels here. So the Angels basically cut bait on like a quarter of their roster. (laughs) They they placed all of their big deadline acquisitions, Lucas Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez, Hunter Renfro wasn't a deadline acquisition, but Giolito, Lopez, Randall Grichik, the only one who didn't make the cut there apparently was CJ Krohn. Uh, I, I think they had uh, Dominic Leone on waivers as well. They also yep. had Matt Moore and Hunter Renfro uh, from their opening day roster, but still pending free agents. They put all those guys on waivers, and basically the intent being... They they did it a couple days before the end of August, uh, before that deadline for playoff teams to have players in the organization to make them postseason eligible. And the intent being, hey, if somebody claims these guys, we're, we're totally out of it. The Angels' August, month of August went about as poorly as it possibly could have for them, like yeesh, between Trout and Otani injuries and just their poor play on the field. Like they had... They had an outside shot at the playoffs at the deadline, which is why they kept Otani and made those moves. And then that all evaporated in the four weeks of August. Um, And so their thought process shifted to, hey, let's see if we can save some money, see if teams will claim these guys. You know, maybe if you're looking at it from like a favorable perspective, you know, hey, let's give these guys a shot at the playoffs since they're not going to do it with our team. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get under the luxury tax in the process. So that was kind of their mentality. Um, mixed results from it, and we still aren't entirely sure if they did sneak under the luxury tax. Uh, so Lucas Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez, and Matt Moore were all claimed by the Guardians, which was interesting, and we can talk about that side of it maybe a little bit later on. Um, Grichik was not claimed. If I'm not mistaken, Leon was also not claimed. No, the Mariners and... got him. Ah, that's right, right. Uh, Mariners yeah. got Leon, and Renfro was claimed by the Reds. So right. Grichik's the only one that stayed, along with uh, CJ Crone, who they didn't waive in the first place for some reason. Um, but yeah, so just really unprecedented. Not in the uh, the sense that, like, wow, I never would have thought of this. Like, this is a crazy idea. What are they doing? Like, it makes perfect logical sense, but we've just never seen it on this scale before. So yeah. John did write a good article about just kind of the totality, the totality of the deadline and the resulting decisions and everything that's happened for the Angels in the last two months and where it leaves them today. Um, 
so John, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. What did, what was your initial reaction to this waiver news and kind of the fallout from it? And where are the angels now? So, you know, our whole thing is we think logically, right? And, you know, we're basing a lot of our sort of concepts on the fact that GMs are rational. In other words, that will do the thing that makes the most sense for their club, right? And sometimes that involves ownership as well. And so my first reaction was like, oh, they're saving money. Well, they're out of it. So, okay, save money. Um, so that was my, the rational side of me. But then there's the sort of other sort of human, if you will, side, which is that, you know, um, it's not a good look from the team's perspective. And certainly in a longer term sense, if you're trying to attract free agents, it's not a good look if they become the team known for dumping all these guys. Um, now, having said that, there's a there's an upside to that, which means which means those guys that were quote unquote dumped ended up going to well not really as it turns out contenders but at the time teams that had a shot and so you could spin it that they were doing the the players a favor by saying you know what we're out of it okay go ahead and play for contenders somewhere else and so the the guys even though they've been bounced around a lot may have appreciated that okay I got a shot with the Reds or whoever so. I suppose those two things cancel each other out. So getting back to my rational point, uh, yeah, um, it's very clear they were trying to get under the luxury tax. There's been multiple reports about that. And the initial sort of wait, wave of waivers, if that's the thing, um, made it seem like they were going to. So at the time I wrote an article about like, okay, how much did they actually – First of all, let's get. We don't really know the answer, as you pointed out, of whether they actually did. It turns out that they probably didn't get under the luxury tax. So, one of my sort of assumptions here was that if they did get under the luxury tax, one of the motivations is that they would get a higher draft pick. Because if they're over the luxury tax, um, the qualifying offer they issue to Otani, when he, of course, then refuses it, will net them a draft pick. That draft pick would be after the fourth round. If they're over the tax, it would be after the second round if they're under the tax. The difference between those two is not that great. It's about $2 million-ish. Um, so from an overall sort of asset value point of view, yeah, it helps. Um, it's basically cutting their losses. And also the actual salaries they, they are saving is also cutting their losses. So it makes sense from a rational point of view, again, uh, to try to do that. Um, because they didn't get under the luxury tax, they've it seems like they're trying whatever they can at this point. Um, they they floated Grishik again, just in the case of, hey, anybody need Grishik? Maybe we'll save a few bucks that way. And I don't think anybody's claimed him. Um, they also did this weird thing with Max Stasi, where they put him on, well, I forget what the name of the list was, but he's been injured. And they basically said, you know what, we're not going to pay you, which seems kind of cold. I'm not sure what the story is there, but... I'm not sure if he agreed to that or whether that's even allowed under the CBA. But anyway, they're trying everything they can to get under the tax. Yeah. From what I saw on that, it, it seems a little fuzzy. It seems like there was a family medical emergency or something on his end. And so he's on the restricted list, which you're right, does um, absolve them from having to pay him. So it's either either they are doing something scummy or it's just a, a coincidence and they are they're happening to benefit from what might not be a great situation in Max Dassey's family life. Uh, but I, I don't think we have much more detail on that. No, we don't. Uh, and I don't want to assume anything there since we don't have the facts. 
Um, but it's not a good look, <laughs> you know, it's like it coming at a time when they're trying to cut as much money as they can to get into the tax. Like, oh, can we cut Stasi too? Oh, he's not in a good place. I mean, that's just not a good look, however it nets out. Um, so there's that. So all of that being said, yes, they're trying to get a luxury tax. Yes, they're trying to cut their losses, which, rational, which is rational. Yes, the optics are not great. Um, so, but if you look at it from a wider point of view, like, all right, go back to where they were before the trade deadline. They had a little bit of a shot. Um, a lot of us thinking rationally thought, okay, they should probably trade Otani because their farm was not great. They're probably not going to make it. But the ownership in the in the management also said, well, you know what? It's Otani's last couple months with us. Let's give it a shot. So they went all in. And, you know, okay, fine. Um, but that decision was you know, the the downside of that de decision was they could seriously hurt their long-term future, and that's exactly what happened. Um, so I wrote an article basically saying, okay, how bad was the damage? How much value did they actually lose? So I'm including the fact that they did not trade Otani in here. At Otani, at the time of our uh, at the deadline, uh, we had his, his surplus value at about $45 million. So by not trading him, they basically ate that $45 million in value. So... You can look at that as a net loss of $45 million. In other words, it's an opportunity cost issue. They could have gotten $45 million in prospect value out of him had they traded him. So that's a lost opportunity. So I'm counting that. Now, the other trades that they did make also decimated the top of their farm. They very much overpaid, overpaid for Giolito. Um, the difference on that was like a loss of another $22 million. They pay, overpaid a little bit on the other two trades as well, the Rockies and the Dominic Leon trade. So all in all, if you add all those up, they lost $72 million in value with that decision to go for it. The fact that they are now sort of trying to you know, cut their losses from that between the value of the veterans that they were claimed in terms of monetary cost, since that money uh, is really the only thing you can measure, since the value of their contribution is worthless, they basically saved $5.7 million. If it turns out that they got under the tax that's in there too, so they saved seventy seven excuse me, seven point seven million. Long story short, they lost seventy two, they gained back seven point seven for a grand total of sixty four point three million in asset value that they lost. By going for it, they basically killed their farm and lost sixty four million in asset value. So that was an expensive decision, needless to say. Not good. So certainly not good. Not what you want to see if you're the Angels. Now, there's a world in which all of this goes in a very drastically different direction where Otani stays healthy and Trout comes back and he's able to be healthy and the other players on the team perform at the best of their abilities and they storm into the playoffs and win the World Series with Otani and maybe that gives them enough goodwill to re-sign him. And in that hypothetical fantasy... I think it's more than worth the $72 million, right? Like they, they would pay probably twice that much if it could absolutely guarantee them a World Series ring and guarantee them, you know, a chance to extend Otani. Uh, but obviously, even from the very beginning, that was a longer than long shot. You know, at the time of the deadline, when they made that choice to hang on to Otani and to add... They were looking at like 10% playoff odds. That's not even World Series odds. That's just getting in. And I think their World Series odds were probably probably somewhere in that like 1% range. So certainly a long shot this whole way. And on the one hand, 
in an era that we're in with teams where they, you know, the more rational teams get, the more they kind of turn to this total fire sale, blow it up, salt of the earth, uh, uh, salt of the earth is not the right phrase for that, uh, <laughs> but total blow it up, uh, tanking rebuild mentality. Scorched earth. Every time. Scorched earth. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, in the, in the era where teams are really trending in that direction and tending to think more logically, tending to think more along the lines of each other, it is a little bit refreshing to see a team actually go for it, especially a team with two just generational talents on it in Trout and Otani. Um, but from the beginning, it looked like, 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 like you said, like it, it was a more rational decision to actually trade Otani in that spot. And they chose not to, and it's already like, okay, well, you're leaving a lot on the table there. And then we immediately see them just dump all of their chips in for kind of a mid to back end type guy in Giolito and in just two months of him. And it's like, eh, this, this might not turn out the best for you guys. And, and like I said, it's gone about as poorly as it could. Um, yeah, Stepping so back from, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I just want to add that. So, you know, sometimes we get criticized for focusing too much on asset value as if that's the only thing that matters, right? As if like, okay, what are the, you know, net, net losses and net weight gains and so forth in your total asset value. And, you know, we're very much thinking like, okay, this is how the GM thinks. That's kind of our point was we want to, for, for audiences, for our, our, our users to play along with the front office basically and, and show them a bit of the, of the way that works. Um, but there's a flip side of that, which is at some point you got to realize you're a baseball team and not just an investment bank, right? You're 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 not in it to to manage your your net assets and assets um, in terms of ups and downs. Yes, that's part of it, but you're also at some point a baseball team on the field that actually wins, and we agree with that. And so to to you have to balance those two things. Do you go for it and focus on the baseball and see if you can win a trophy? Or do you focus on the overall sort of how much do we lose, how much should we gain in terms of net, net asset value? So obviously this is a baseball team and a baseball sport, and yes, that's very important, and we try to we, we support that. But we're also measuring the sort of the ups and downs of the asset value. And the reason we think that's important is because that's the capital that gets you there. If you're a fan of the Angels, you know, you have to you have to ask yourself what is my ownership what is the front office doing are they trying to win is it better to win now is it better to kind of strengthen the farm and try again in the long so you so as a fan if you're following along you have to balance those things as well so when we're focusing on what is the net loss here we're basically saying okay if you're a fan of the angels that's not good because it's going to hurt your chances later so it was a gamble and they lost the gamble but that's why we were trying to measure it how much did they actually lose in that gamble right it's it's getting into the subjective versus the more objective, right? Where every yeah. deadline or every off season or whatever, we, we see people going like, wow, these values are way off. They say you could trade, you know, this superstar for this middle reliever because the superstar is under 9 million underwater and the relievers like right at, at surplus, like even, even surplus value, 0.0. .0. That, that means they're saying that this is a good trade the team should make, and that's why the model is bad. And, and we've talked about this plenty of times before, but just because something is going to be plus value, you know, just because the value, it, it would be a, a value positive move for your team to make, doesn't mean that it is a good move for your team to make, doesn't make it a good baseball decision. Like, 
when the Angels were in the thick of this, you know, if they got an offer for somebody to take Mike Trout for free and, you know, they don't have to pay any money down, that would have been a steal for them because we have Mike Trout a little bit underwater right now. And then we'll, we'll get into a little bit more of that later. But that doesn't mean it's a baseball move they would have or should have made when they are in this mindset of we're going to try to win right now. So th- there's always the balance, like like you're saying. There's the balance between this is what the numbers say, this is what the math says, this is what, you know, if we were just playing this in a, a vacuum devoid of human emotion, devoid of the actual sport we're playing here, if we were just playing it on our calculators, this is what it says you should do. And you have to balance that with like, but it is a sport. There is a fan base. There is a desire to win. There is a competitive fire here. What are we actually trying to do here from that perspective? And and how do we get those two things to line up? Um, I suppose that's a good segue into Trout. Um, Just today, actually, on on this Sunday, um, we're getting some buzz about, you know, this time it might be for real. The Angels might actually be open to trading trout if he says he wants out and you know I, I think i think the latest report before this one was something along the lines of trout's going to meet with the angels front office in the off season to kind of discuss the future um it seems like a turning point for the organization you know this all likelihood you know 99 probability that otani walks in free agency they don't really have a lot left after losing him i mean obviously they they weren't able to do anything with him it's not going to get better with him walking. Um, and, and they have a handful of pending free agents. They have a handful of kind of old aged guys who aren't doing a whole lot on their roster between Rendon, Brandon Drury's not going to get any younger. Tyler Anderson's not going to get any younger. Um, the, the future's looking kind of bleak for this organization. Outside of a, a Zach Neto who looks okay and a Nolan Shonwell who looks okay, like there's, there's not a lot else there to dream on for the next couple years and so if Mike Trout is already saying like all right I'm gonna have to reevaluate things here that's that's kind of writing on the wall on that one so it seems like we are heading to an off season of if not a Mike Trout trade at least heavy Mike Trout trade speculation and I think that means it's it's time to take this opportunity to look at what that trade might look like and it, it's going to look very similar to a couple of the other underwater superstar trades we've seen in recent years. Um, we currently have Trout at negative 95.6 million. That's because he's owed 253.5 million. Uh, once we get to the, the end of this season, that number will come down into the 245-ish range, just kind of eyeballing it. Um, and, and he's projected during the next seven years to be worth about 150 million in field value, 157.9. So that's where you get that negative 95.6. It's basically, he is still Mike Trout. He does still have that superstar background, but he's on the wrong side of 30 and he hasn't been able to stay on the field the last couple of years. And this year, even when he has been on the field, it has been his first real step back. So there's a lot of reasons for concern there. Honestly, it's a quite similar situation you know the magnitude is a little larger because it's trout and because there's more money there and because he's a little older but it is a fairly reminiscent situation to the arenado deal at that time we were saying a lot of the same things about arenado you know he's getting older he's owed all this money and he's his performance is starting to drop and 
he's starting to get banged up and, and there's real reasons to be concerned about all of these things. That had Arenado's contract underwater. That forced the Rockies to eat a lot of money and not get a lot in return. And it ended up going through. And, and to this point, that deal has worked for the Cardinals. I could absolutely see something similar happening with Trout here. But at least what we're looking at right now is that, yeah, he, he is pretty significantly underwater for all of those reasons. Yeah. The other thing, the other trade that comes to mind is Giancarlo Stanton. Now, he was coming off an MVP year where he hit almost 60 home runs for the Marlins at the time. So... And even then, the um, Marlon and he had a no trade as well. So even though they mutually agreed on the Yankees as a destination, um, you know there's still a lot more complications to it. Uh, the Marlins had to kick in a whole bunch of money, and they didn't get much back. They got a you know they got a salary offset, um, and I forget who the player was, and um, one or two prospects that were very kind of lowly ranked and didn't never make it. So. Um, so it was not the kind of return that you would expect, and it was similar to the Arenado deal. So that's what you're looking at here with Trout. And um, as we, excuse me, as we get closer to the end of the season, um, that number, that surplus number, the salary owed number might go down. But the surplus number might go down a little bit more as well because the injury risk has continued to be a thing. Um, now let's talk about that a little bit. So we had a Hammett injury, right? There's a lot of people who have had Hammett injuries and have come back just fine. Um, so one would think, okay, that's an isolated case, and he'll come back just fine. But he didn't, which is weird. It still hurts. So that's a question mark. Then the bigger issue, I think, is his back injury, which surfaced uh, in the last year or two, um, which, according to the reports I read, means that he's just going to have to kind of play through it, and it's not going to be ever really the same. So in other words, he's going to be a chronically injured you know, uh, player. He's still obviously supremely talented, but his years of being, you know, a superstar, putting up superstar numbers, or the last year he put up uh, 8.3 war was 2019. That was also the last year he played a f reasonably close to a full season. Now, obviously, 2020 was the uh, pandemic year, so you can't really count that. But 2021, he played 36 games. 2022, he played 119 games. This year, he's only played half a season, and the way it looks out, that's probably only, only going to be at about 82 games. So you got to wonder, <coughs> excuse me, how healthy he's going to be. Excuse me. So you're looking at injury risk increasing dramatically and performance decline. And so those two things are interrelated as well. And the fact that he's owed $35.45 million through 2030. So you can imagine he's going to be even worse as he goes into when he's 35, you're paying 35 million. When he's 36, you're paying him 35 million, 37, 38. And just like, that's an underwater contract. I'm sorry. So it's going to take some, so from the Angels perspective to trade him, they're going to have to kick in a bunch of money and eat a lot of that contract just to get anything back. Now, I don't blame them for trying to do that because maybe freeing up that money is more important in terms of like reinvesting it in younger, better players. But I mean, it's not going to be the trout of old. You know, you're not going to get you're not going to get a, a, a killer return for him at all. Right. It it would behoove the Angels to eat, you know, half that salary, push him into the positive, and then you know, let, let's look at the Phillies as kind of the, I think they're the the market leader, the the betting odds leader, whatever you want to call it, for Trout because you know he's from Millville, New Jersey, so local guy, and he's always just been kind of connected there, and he's a big Eagles fan and all that, so they're kind of the favorite. Let, let's say the Angels eat half of his remaining 
250-ish. That that would push his surplus, you know, doing some quick math here. Uh, that would push him like 50, 60, 70 million over. Um, that that puts you in the range of like, okay, we can we can start shopping for like a decent young player, some decent prospects, like actually get a real return for this guy. Like of Cohen course, did, like with with the last yes. that he traded, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, of course, the problem is that that's going to cost you, <laughs> you know, a whole lot of a whole lot of money. It's going to cost you 125 million um, to to cover half of that salary and and get him into the positive there. But your alternative is you're paying 100 million and not getting anything back. You know, getting bits and pieces, spare parts, and you know I it's it's all about what Artie Moreno wants to do. He's so difficult to read. He he had the whole saga last offseason with, I'm selling the team, I'm selling the team. Nope, actually not at all. I, I'm going to stick around. I want to see this thing out. And it failed miserably this year. So where does that leave him? Is he looking to sell the team again? Is he going to tear it all down and then sell it? Is he going to sell it and then tear it all down? Like, I, it, it's hard to read exactly where they're going to go next. Um you know, given given how little there is left in that organization, and I say this as someone who likes Zach Neto and likes Reed Detmers, and you know, Nolan Shonwell has been interesting so far in the big leagues. He seems kind of James Loney-ish. That's cool. Um, all of that aside, though, there just isn't a lot there, right? There's there's not much to build on. You don't have a Jackson Chorio or anybody like that, like coming up the pipeline as like this is going to be the next guy we build our team around, like. It's a lot of spare parts after all of those trades that they made um, to, to add guys like Giolito and some kind of underwhelming draft classes in recent years. Yeah, so looking at their fa- their farm is, you know, their top prospect according to our model is Nelson Rada, who's an 18-year-old kid um, who has some promise, but he's, you know, <laughs> he's got a long way to go, right? So, um you know, he just he just played the season in low A, right? And you know, looks decent, but you know, so we have him in terms of his his value at six point four, uh, Kyron Paris at six three, um, and it you know basically we're looking at mid to low single digits here in the farm. So there's really no to your point. There's really no like superstar here. There's not even like a bona fide sort of future regular like Logan Ohapi was with a fifty rating. There's just not that. You just got question marks and kids here. So, um, yeah, there's nothing to build on, obviously, which means if you're an Angels fan again, you're going to be looking at a long sort of dry desert for a while here of a rebuild unless something changes drastically. So maybe trading Trout trading trout and some money is going to help inject some life into that like the Mets did. Right, and, and kind of the other side of that is there's not a lot of desirable players left on that team that are in that kind of sweet spot of like, okay, if we're going to switch to selling, we'll trade this guy, this guy, and this guy, and it'll help us kind of recoup some of our losses, right? You've got Detmers and Ohapi and, and Neto, but they're kind of, you know, they're the they're too young almost, right? They're too early into their big league career. Yeah. Yeah. You don't see guys at that point get traded and sold off for prospects even though you know if you are the angels and you're looking at like there's going to be an extended dry spell here it's going to be three or four years until we're even really thinking about competing again well after this year detmers is only going to have four seasons left so maybe you quote unquote should trade him but you just don't see that happen very often and 
you figure he hasn't like fully established himself. So maybe there aren't teams who would be willing to pay quite that much for him. We have him at 38.5 in surplus right now. And so even if teams think he's good, maybe they don't quite buy that and they're not going to quite pay that much for him. And so if you are the angels, maybe it is better to hang on to him. It is better to hang on to Ohapi, Even if you're technically burning surplus value by hanging on to these guys, you're letting them establish themselves to right. the point where teams are more comfortable trading for them. And yeah. so after that kind of tier of Detmer, Zohapi, Neto, you're looking at Patrick Sandoval. Okay, he hasn't had the best year, but he's still a decent starter. Griffin Canning, he's kind of had an up and down career, but maybe you get something there. And then you're dropping down to the Luis Renjifos and Jimmy Hurgits of the world and whatever is going to be made of Mickey Moniak and, and things like that. You know, there's there's not obvious, you know, you look at like a Brandon Drury where, yes, he's a big league contributor, but he's also being paid some money and he's just going to be a rental next year. So he, we have him at point one. So you're not getting much there, even if you eat a bunch of money there. And uh, poor Carlos Taylor Esteves. Ward, he might have had something with Taylor yeah. Ward, but he got hit in the face and he, I don't know, who knows how, how well he's going to come back. I hope he does, but there's a whole bigger question mark there. So yeah. Right. And <laughs> Tyler Anderson hasn't been that great, like mm. I mentioned, and Carlos Estevez hasn't been amazing, and Max Stassi is hurt and out now, and Anthony Rendon is a mess. So there's there's nothing where <laughs> you you look at this and you say, okay, there's a path forward here, right? We trade Trout, we pay down his contract a ton to get like a just to pick a name out of a hat to get a Mick Abel or an Andrew Painter if they pay him down that much. Um, and, and then from there, we can also trade this guy, this guy, and this guy, and that'll really restock our farm. It'll put us into the middle of the pack there. We're going to get some early draft picks for the next couple seasons because we're going to be so bad. And that kind of positions us to be, you know, a top 10 farm and to be knocking on the door again in 2026, 2027. You don't see a path like that for this roster right here. What I see when I look at this roster is who oh boy, this team as constructed is going to win 70 games in 2024 at best. And they're an expensive team that doesn't really have a farm system, doesn't really have a future. And if they trade trout, it only gets worse. So it's there, there's not an easy way out of this hole for them to make the playoffs any sooner than 2027, 2028. Things would have to go like perfectly for them. I think you'd need an ownership change. You'd need a front office change. You'd need a lot to go differently than it currently is. And uh, it's it's kind of like you were looking at at the trade deadline, right? You need a lot to go right for that trade deadline to work out for them, their, their decisions there, and it all went wrong. And now you're at kind of a similar point here where you would need a lot to go right for them to turn things around any quicker than like four or five years from now. And even if you did say, let's say you blamed it on Perry Manassi and the GM, first of all, I don't because I think he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, and I think he's doing the best he can with the situation he's got. But let's say you're an Angels fan and you're angry and you say, ah, oh, it's fire the GM. So then you bring in a new GM and maybe who's also kind of bright and full of ideas, but he's going to take one look at this and say, there's nothing here to work with. And I've got a meddlesome owner who's notoriously difficult to work for and overpays for aging guys and so on. So like, that's not going to change, right? Unless, unless the team is sold, but if the team is sold, you may not have a job. So every way you look at it, it's not good. Right. It's there, there's nothing good to come from here. Um, it's unfortunate, but 
hey, at least uh, the A's will have some company in the bottom well, of that division in the coming years, right? Yeah, and it's also why I'm sure uh, you know Shohei Otani and his agent looked at this and said, uh-oh, <laughs> nope, <laughs> I'm not residing here because there's just no future that they could see. Right, and you know, from one perspective, it's not the worst time to be bad with the Mariners and Rangers and Astros all really kind of hitting their stride at the same point here. And they're all hyper competitive and they're going to be hyper competitive for the next couple years. So maybe it's not the worst time to say, Hey, we're going to bow out of this one. The problem is it's going to be more than a few years, but um, I guess we can use that as a quick segue. I do want to circle back to the waiver claims um, and, and talk about the teams that were on kind of the receiving end of those and some of the other oddities from that. But let's talk about the Mariners really quick. I said I would do so on the last episode. They have stayed hot. Um, they are no longer leading the division. They're a game and a half back of the Astros, but they have, a as of, as of recording, uh, right now they're losing to the Rays, so it's probably a little bit lower than that. But as of recording, Fangraphs gives them a 24.4% chance of winning the division and a 79.5% chance of making the playoffs, which we would not have seen this coming a month and a half ago, and neither did the Mariners. That's why they were kind of towing the line between buying and selling. They ended up trading away their closer, Paul Seawald, and getting back some like interesting-ish young fringe major, major leaguers in that deal. And they were really thinking about trading Teoscar Hernandez, and, and they decided not to. And boy, has that paid off for them because he's been on fire since the trade deadline. And he's been a big part of why they've kind of surged in the standings and they're really right in the thick of it right now. So hat tip to them. I don't know if I have much else to say here other than like, this is perhaps an argument for keeping those fringe rental bats, fringe rental players that aren't going to give you much in a trade. Like this is what can happen, right? If you, if you just kind of cross your fingers and, and we did kind of talk about the Mariners in this light heading into that deadline, right? Where it's like, maybe they can shuffle some bullpen pieces around because they're just a relief ace machine out there. Like they can pump out late inning arms like anybody else, but maybe they just shuffle some pieces around there and either hang on to Teoscar or flip him for whatever. And they basically let it ride the rest of the season with a pretty similar looking roster. That's what we're looking at. And so far it's paying off for them because Teoscar has really been carrying the offense out of nowhere. Yeah. Sometimes you get the feeling that Jerry DePoto just wants to make trades for the sake of making trades. Like I gotta do something. Okay. So you know, he makes the Seawald trade, right? Which, you know, in retrospect looks a little puzzling, but on the other hand, I guess he could sort of afford it. In other words, he was trading from some surplus of really good bullpen arms. And so he's okay. Um, the Teoscar thing is easier because there really was no surplus value. He was off to a bad start, kind of had a down year. He's a rental, he's being paid a lot of money, you know. So, you know, there's no point in trading him for, you know, a nothing prospect or a journeyman if just just for the sake of making a trade, right? You might as well just hold on to him and hope for the best, and that's worked out. So there are other cases like that where I think, you know, um, it, it GMs, I think, think that way. Uh, I was listening to a podcast with Dave Dombrowski recently where he basically said, look, I'm not going to make a trade unless it's an upgrade. If I, you know, I'm not going to do it just to do it, right? So every time we looked at possible trade acquisition candidates, it's like, is that an upgrade over what we already have? If not move on 
So I think that's that's prevalent a lot. So if there was no upgrade possibility in a Tejasker trade, then what was the point of trading? So I'm glad that worked out for them. Um, but I think that's 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 it. Um, and yeah, I think they were also sort of underperforming a little bit in the first half of the season. Now they've caught fire. Julio obviously is their key, and he caught fire. So and it's been contagious apparently. So good for them. Yeah, and to their credit, the Paul Seawald trade hasn't been terrible for them. You know, yeah. they kind of they kind of got like an interesting prospect and a couple guys in Josh Rojas and Dominic Canzone who are like bench platoon type players. Maybe they're a starter if everything totally breaks right for them. Um, but that's they weren't expecting them to step in and be, you know, superstars off the bat, consistent everyday players. To their credit, though, Josh Rojas has been really good since he joined the Mariners. He has a 112 WRC plus, and Canzone, he's at 89, so kind of still a little bit below league average. But if you told Mariners, if you told Depoto and the Mariners that they would get league average production between these two down the stretch, I think they would have taken it because this is a team that's starting Mike Ford every day against righties and Brian O'Keefe and Cade Marlowe are getting a lot of plate appearances. Like this is a team without much offensive depth. And so even just the ability to plug in those two guys at like a league average offensive production is a win for them. And when they're dealing from such a position of strength as the bullpen, like that, that works. And that's before you even factor in the additional years of control that those guys come with. And, and the prospect Ryan bliss, who's kind of a hitting freak, like, not not the type of guy who jumps off the page at you. I think he's like 5'8 or something like that, but he just hits. He's just a, one of those scrappy types. So if he turns into anything, then it's even more of a win for them. So I, I think that trade has worked out essentially as they hoped it would, um, at least in, in the short term. And yeah, the cost to them for it was pretty low since they are dealing from such a position of strength. Yeah, and you might recall there were rumors of of trading one of their starters uh logan gilbert's name popped up in a few rumors and i'm pro and i'm pretty sure they're glad they didn't make that move uh we talked about it at the time and it was kind of puzzling because you know they were going to need pitching strength and and now they probably have the most pitching depth of any of the or, or right up there with all the other injuries to the dodgers and yankees and all these other well yankees are not contender but um other teams are really struggling uh, astros for example um, but here at the Mariners, they've got Castillo and Kirby and Logan Gilbert and, and Bryce Miller and Brian. I mean, yes, a lot of those guys are young guys, but they're healthy. They're good. You know, so I think they're in a better position for having not trade Gilbert as well. Right. And I wonder if I wonder if the Trader Jerry kind of stigma is, is a little bit outdated now because he's been a little bit more reserved the past couple years. You know, he, he really came on to the scene when he when he took over the reins and he was making all these deals and there's the stories of him making deals from the hospital and, and all of this stuff. But he's been kind of kind of quieter the last couple of years. Um, he, he made the big deal for Luis Castillo. And since then, it's been a bit more muted. Last offseason, he made that kind of interesting smaller move for where he flipped Jesse Winker and got back Colton Wong. And, and that one didn't really work. Um, I guess Justin Topa has been solid for them and, and he was in that deal as well, but really not a whole lot. You know, you, you hear these, these rumors about like you're saying about moving a young arm, but that didn't come to fruition and he doesn't move to Oscar and he doesn't move any other relievers other than Seawald. 
So I I wonder if his reputation precedes him <laughs> in that in that way. At the yeah. same time, though, <clears throat> I could see him going wild this offseason. We, we've talked yeah. about how weak the hitting market looks in free agency um, outside of, of Otani or Teoscar or I guess whatever you think of Matt Chapman's offense. Um, but this is still a team that needs some bats, and this is still a team that, like you said, has just a total stock of quality rotation arms. So once you get to the offseason and you have some more flexibility to backfill a spot in the rotation with, hey, let's go sign Kyle Gibson or Wade Miley or, hey, let's go trade for Paul Blackburn, you know, just filling in reliable innings in that fifth spot to backfill a trade. I wonder if that gives him more flexibility to like, all right, now we're going to actually consider a big move for a Kirby or a Logan Gilbert, or maybe a smaller but still significant and impactful move for a Bryce Miller or a Brian Wu, knowing that we have time to kind of backfill that spot instead of we're in the thick of a pennant race and we don't have rotation depth to backfill that fifth spot, so we're starting Dominic Leone every fifth day or whatever. Like, I wonder if he takes time, takes stock in the offseason and goes out and makes that big move to add some offensive depth because this team does still need it, especially with Teoscar hitting free agency after the season. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at their, their lineup um, outside of Julio and maybe a hot Teoscar, it's not like a scary bat, right? If you're the opposing pitcher, you're like, eh, JP Crawford's good. You can get shortstop, but I'm, I'm going to attack him. Um, Cal Raleigh, I'm going to attack him. And then you got like Ken Zone and Ford and like, I, yeah, of course I'm going to attack those guys. So you're not really, a, you're not really afraid of anybody in that lineup outside of Julio, frankly. And then after Teoscar leaves and, you know, really not much. So you could, you need a couple of more scary bats. If you look at what the Padres did in the last couple of years by adding those scary bats, by adding Machado and Bogarts and Soto, you know, their whole thinking was, yes, we want monsters in that first one through five, one through six slots, you know, you know, outside of Julio, there's not really a monster there. So they're going to have to, if they're seriously going to contend, they're going to have to look at that either through free agency and or trade. Obviously, I think they're going to be in the Otani market. Um, They have a tendency to uh, focus on, uh, you know, Asian players as well because there was a, there's a tie there, and obviously they're a West Coast team. So I think they'll be big players for Otani, and I do think they'll be active in the free agent market getting a bat if there is one, if not in the trade market. Now, the thing is, in the in the if you look at their farm, there's not like a, a, a scary bat coming. Triple A, the only guys in their 40 are Cooper Hummel and Taylor Trammell, neither of whom are scary bats. So you got to dig a little bit to get down to like the Harry Fords and the and the uh, Gabriel Gonzalez. Those guys are younger and and in in the lower minors. So there's not really anything coming. Is my point. So they're really going to have to go for it this off season. Right. They they do have a couple like interesting enough pop up prospects from this season, and but those are guys in the lower minors, and it's yeah, going to be a couple exactly. years before they can make an impact. And they're a competitive team right now who needs help, and. You know, even with the injury, if they are serious players for Otani, obviously that's the best bat on the market. But it's a guy who, once he is back from that injury, you can kind of pencil him in as a member of the rotation as well. In maybe not in, well, obviously not in 2024 if we are thinking he's going to have Tommy John, and maybe not in like the first half of 2025 even. But at least you know, longer term, you can you can factor him in, and maybe that makes you a little bit more comfortable trading one of those young arms, trading even two of those young arms and saying, Hey, let's, let's just fill in this slot with 
the Kyle Gibsons of the world, the Lance Lynns of the world, guys like that for the next year, year and a half. And we'll be fine with that because our front three guys are so good. Front four guys are so good. And we're going to have a Shohei Otani to add to that in a year or two. Um, obviously, this is like total, total fantasy world here. We're getting way ahead of ourselves with if they sign Otani, that kind of a thing. But it, it would create some more flexibility for them if they signed him or there there is a decent crop of starting pitchers available even if it is a, a sunny gray or somebody like that like that does give them more flexibility to trade one of those arms for a bat yeah blake snell will be available there are a few good starters available so yeah right i, I believe seattle native blake snell if i'm not mistaken yeah exactly he's from that area so one theory is they could sign a blake snell kind of kind of guy and really bolster the rotation, and then trade to, trade a Logan Gilbert or Brian Wu for a hitter, right, or two, right? So you're kind of mixing and matching there. So I can see them doing something like that. Right. I, I think if Blake Snell and Robbie Ray share a rotation, um, we, we might have some problems. <laughs> that, that seems like a very stressful pair of pitchers to watch on back-to-back days. Um, well, we'll need some some therapy for Mariners fans. But hey, they're Mariners <laughs> fans. They've been through it. They already have therapists. Yes. Um, Lots of rain there. Yes. Um, okay, uh, let's let's segue. Let's force this segue. Um, the Mariners, they're a team that claimed D- Dominic Leone in that kind of waiver wire madness. Uh, he's very uninspiring, very average middle reliever. Nothing to talk about there. But let's talk about the other guys instead. Um, the Guardians came out the big winner in this one. Uh, they claimed Lucas Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez, and Matt Moore. The Giolito-Lopez thing is funny, because those two have been traded together twice now, and then they also get claimed via waivers together. So they're just inseparable. They have to sign with the same team in free agency this offseason. It's, it's, it is the, the law of the land. Um, interesting move here by the Guardians, though. They're not a team that's really known for taking on salary in this way, and obviously it's not a ton of money, but it's a few million dollars that they didn't have to take on. And they were really on the outside of the playoff picture looking in when they claimed these guys, and they've only fallen further since then. Um, obviously, it's the AL Central. It's the most winnable, one of the most winnable divisions in baseball year after year. But even now, um, after adding these guys, the Guardians are sitting at, I believe, if my page would load, at 0.4% odds to make the playoffs, um, according to fan graphs. The Twins have basically locked this thing up. Um, so it... A weird enough decision. I mean, this is a team that needed innings. They made that weird Ahmed Rosario, Noah Syndergaard trade, and then Syndergaard was bad for them. Shocker. And and he got cut. So still need to backfill innings on this team. It's just a weird season overall for the Guardians, where it seemed like the whole way they had a decent chance if they just pushed a little harder. And instead, at the deadline, they got worse. But then a month after the deadline, they said, okay, let's try and get a little bit better. And, and it didn't work. So I'm not sure what to make of the Guardians this year. So I kind of liked it when they claimed those guys, right? So logically, you know, when those guys were put on the waiver wire by the Angels, right? Giolito and Lopez and everybody else. You know, you can kind of, kind of go through the checklist, right? It goes from worst to first, uh, right? So you know the A's weren't going to claim them because they're rentals and they don't need them and they don't want to pay them. So, and that's true. You go on down the line, the Nationals and everybody else. And so you finally get to kind of the middle of the pack and you're like, the Guardians. Oh, the Guardians are out of it. So then the, the Marlins or the Diamondbacks. And uh, so the speculation was that some team like that was going to get those guys. But the but because the Guardians had a worse record, 
they went for it, even though they had at the time, like, yeah, 5% chance of making the playoffs. I kind of had to hand it to them. Like, okay, good. You give it a shot. It's basically free players. So why not? You got a 5% shot and you know, the twins are no great shakes. It's the weak AL central. So, and they were about to play them. So they had a shot, right? So they figured, okay, we'll go for it. And especially if you look at it from the guardians perspective, they trade away Savali, right? To get a prospect, a hitter, which they needed in the long run. So they traded short term for long term. Basically, they went on, and then they replaced Savali with Giolito. So they basically just like only had like a month in between there where they had, you know, like uh, an experienced veteran starter who was generally pretty good. So, you know, if you consider Savali and Giolito about the same. So, so they're really the, the price they paid for, for their, uh, for, you know, trading Savali was not like, oh, we lost a pitcher for two months. It was really only we lost a pitcher for one month because they got Giolito to replace him. So it was really kind of savvy from their point of view. And they got a better reliever and they got, you know, two better relievers, actually. It didn't work out, but I got to give them credit for trying. Yeah, I'll, I'll say I, I'll definitely agree on that. Like, give them credit for they saw an opening. They saw a chance to add talented players for free to a team that needed players in those positions. And they took it like good on them it's a little bit weird that they didn't claim a bat in all of this i mean i, I know randall gritchick yeah. and hunter renfro and harrison bader aren't going to be setting the world on fire for anyone but you figure one of them could have helped that team but at least they got went out and got some guys um i don't think i'm willing to give them quite as much credit as you are just because a they could have never seen this coming like they had no inkling when they made the Savali trade that Giolito would be available a month later. That just wasn't on anyone's radar. And B, there's obviously the future seasons, right? That that Savali has a couple more years of team control after this one. Giolito's a free agent, so they're still going to have sure. to figure that out in the long term. But I, I think they wouldn't have traded Savali if they didn't feel comfortable promoting from within like they always do and, and building their new rotation that way in the longer term. So... I don't think that's necessarily as much of a factor here for them, specifically as a team who can always turn, you know, capable mid-rotation starters out like it's nothing. Um, yeah. Just a just a generally generally weird season for them. I feel like though of, you know, they they won the division last year. They were such a young team. We there was obvious points of regression there, right? Nobody expected. Andres Jimenez to quite repeat the season that he had and instead he's taken a pretty significant step back and some of their other young contributors maybe there was a little bit uh, of, of flukiness in there in getting them to where they were but I don't know it, they, the Guardians are always content to kind of spin their wheels in this like 80 to 85 win range and when things break right they'll get to 90 get a little bit over when things are break wrong like this season they'll be a little under 500 but that's it they seem super content to be there and it's like it, at some point you'd want to see them make an actual push right and mm. I, this is less of a this is less of a criticism of the waiver claims obviously because the waiver claims are them doing exactly that it's them actually making a push and like good for them it's more of a criticism of how they handled the deadline in general of let's you know, I, I think the, the Josh Bell move was savvy on their part. I think that was a good job by them to get out from an underwater pro, uh, underwater contract and net a prospect in the process somehow. Like, good on them for that one. And I think in a vacuum, the Savali deal is fine. They got a good hitter that they need 
who can be their long-term answer at that position. But it was weird to see they're in such a winnable position, and if they just added a few wins, that would kind of leapfrog them over the Twins in terms of their expectations down the stretch, and instead all they did was subtract at the deadline. I don't really get it. It's, you know what, it's, you know, we talked earlier about balancing going for it with asset management. And asset management is a financial term, but what that means is it gives you a shot for the longer term. Like, if you don't win it this year, you've got, you know, cards to play the next year and the next year after that. So that's what they're doing. They're, like, managing the sort of probabilities and saying, okay, well, we're probably not winning the World Series this year, so we're probably not going to be super aggressive. So we're not going to blow up our farm just to be aggressive for this one year. We're going to balance out, give us give ourselves a little bit of a shot while keeping the long term in mind. And that's kind of the mantra of so many modern day GMs, as we know. And so they're doing that too. And it's a little bit like the Cardinals in a way, because they're always in it. They're always in the 80s in terms of winning, except for this year. And so I think they're sort of the model for the Guardians in a way. I, I find it to be just like a frustrating mindset to have, even if it is like, like going back to like, like, you're right. Going back to what we were saying earlier in this episode about like, there's the way that the numbers say you should do it. There's the way that the baseball, the emotion, the the competitiveness says you should do it. And then there's the happy medium that every team finds themselves somewhere in uh, between those two. There's, there's like a spectrum, right. Of how aggressive you'll be to, to satisfy the emotional and competitive needs versus how, hard you're going to the numbers and there's something just kind of boring to me and that would be disappointing to me if I was a fan of the Guardians of them just year in and year out saying okay we're unlikely to win the World Series so let's kind of continue to spin our wheels and shoot for 82 wins 85 wins 87 wins right like at some point you go for it and that doesn't have to be a Padres level go for it of we're going to spend all the money in the world and trade all of our prospects. But we've talked about how strong of a farm the Guardians have had forever, and they have not made like a single trade from that farm to improve their big league team. And you, you figured at some point they would. They could consolidate a few of those guys into at least one or two impact players at the big league level. Again, not selling out your farm, not trading out your top, top guys, but making some sort of move there. And... I don't know. It, like like I said, it would just be, if I were a Guardians fan, I would be perpetually bored <laughs> and frustrated with this team. Even if they are making the correct value decisions, it's not a satisfying way to run an organization as a fan. And acknowledging that you have to balance those two needs, you know, the need to make good moves on paper and the, the, the need to field a competitive roster and satisfy your fan base, I just feel like they sometimes lean a little bit too close to the value side of things. I, I I get it. And I, I will add to that, especially this year when the Twins were no great shakes. It was like, come on, somebody step up. And the Twins didn't make any moves really either, except for one minor one. But, you know, so like that was doable, right? If you're the Guardians and you go to shot, like you could have pushed a little bit more. To, the Twins were very gettable, right? Like they still didn't quite. So, yeah, I get that. And eventually, you know, obviously the White Sox are – going into a rebuild of their own eventually the royals or tigers have to put something together like they well, they got they, bad forms too you can't just rest on your laurels forever and just fall back on oh we're in the al central we can always be competitive with an 84 win team like 
at some point something is going to change either the twins are going to put something together and jump out of that kind of area or you know the royals will actually build a team around bobby witt and and get something going again or the tigers you know torkelson and green are showing flashes this year if they can build around those guys they might have something and they have some pitchers coming back from injuries who have some talent and maybe they can click like i i wouldn't put any money on any of those things happening but just you know like law of large numbers type thing and and just random variation in baseball one of those three teams you figure will be good at some point here right so if you're the Guardians and you have this strong farm and you have this smart front office and you have a Jose Ramirez in his prime and a Stephen Kwan in his prime and an Andres Jimenez who took a step back this year but is still a pretty good baseball player, like I would think that this is the time you capitalize instead of thinking like, oh, but we want to be good in five years too because who knows what five years from now looks like. So yeah. I, I think there's there's value to this approach for sure. I think the Cardinals comparison is like an apt one and the Cardinals do it on a larger scale. They'll make a move for a Goldschmidt or an Arenado when they can, when, when that becomes available to them and let those guys be kind of the center of their team. But you're right that they do tend to avoid trading their prospects away, pushing chips in, building a hundred win super team. They would, they're content to live in that 90 ish range because they're in a similarly weak division. But I think just like we're seeing with the Cardinals right now, where they're not going to be able to coast to those 90 wins year in and year out anymore. The Reds and the Pirates are starting to promote all of this young talent, and the Brewers are a consistent threat in that division, and they have some exciting young talent on the way as well. And there's a fifth team in that division. Who am I missing from that division? The Cubs. The Cubs. <laughs> the, the Cubs always spend money, and they have some interesting players now, so they're kind of in that mix. Um, the Cardinals are seeing their division kind of turn on them. Like they're not going to be able to coast to 90 wins every year like they used to. And they're going to need to make some bigger moves this off season to get back into it. And I think we could see the guardians in that spot at some point in the next few years. And it's like, okay, why don't we get ahead of that? Why don't we build a team that's better, build a system that's better and not have to worry about that when the Royals step up or whoever it is. Yeah. I mean, one counter to that, um, this is my last point on the Guardians, is that it's really hard, and you know I think it's one of those est- underestimated problems that front offices face. It's really hard to kind of sync everything up at the same time. So you have a great player in, in, uh, in <clears throat> Jose Ramirez, right? But he's 31 now, to your point about he's in his prime. Yes, just kind of at the tail end of his prime, though. You can see that he's not going to be totally great as you get into his 30s. He's going to start to decline. So you got him, right? But he can't build around him because he's 31. And you got a bunch of young guys who are still kind of unproven, right? Gabriel Arias and Jimenez is still young and Will Brennan. And then you've got the pitchers. But the pitchers, you have Gavin Williams and Tanner Bybee and Logan Allen. And, you know, they have a tendency to bring up these young pitchers, but they're young. And that's really all they had. They lost Bieber. So they couldn't, you know, it's not like they're going to win a World Series with three young rookie pitchers. Are they? Probably not. So, like, they're not quite sinking like what you want is like a core that comes up together right everybody's in sync everybody's got the same sort of you know um years of control they played together in the minors that's your core right so it's always kind of a challenge to kind of get that core happening at the right time and then you augment that core with an older veteran or two and a trade or two or whatever but you know it's they're not quite there yet with that core excuse me and i think the core is probably that young pitching staff 
but they just came up this year. So give them another year or two, and then maybe that's the core with a couple of these other guys, and maybe that's when they go for it. Yeah, I, I could see it. And if that's their plan, if they have that set as a plan, then like totally get it. Back off. I'm on board with it. It just feels like that's been the plan for three, four years now of them always, you know, they, they, every deadline, they trade a veteran starter away, right? That's kind of their thing. And it, and it works out for them. They've done a good job of it, but you just, you would hope to see it come to fruition more than just that one kind of dream world series appearance that they ended up losing. Um, yeah, that's a lot on the guardians, a lot more than I expected. Let's talk about the other central team that made a couple aggressive claims here. Uh, the Reds picked up Harrison Bader and Hunter Renfro. I really like this a lot for them. They're another team that people were a bit disappointed in at the deadline. They've been an exciting team this year. They promoted all these good young players, and they've been just night and day compared to what we're used to seeing from the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, and, th- and that had them kind of on the fringes of the playoff race in the NL Central and in the thick of the wild card race. So they add a couple bats here. At the deadline, they didn't really do much. They added Sam Mole, and that was it. They could have really used another starting pitcher. But now they add some offensive depth, especially... I think this came before, but recently they've been going through kind of a COVID surge on their team. And they've been dropping guys on the injured list left and right. And so this certainly helps. You know, these these aren't superstars they're picking up. Bader is a good defender, but really inconsistent with the bat. He's kind of league average at best. He'll show some flashes, but that's about it. And Renfro has a big arm, but maybe isn't the best, you know, doesn't have the most range out in right field and has some power, but he's a little bit limited. He'll strike out a bunch. He won't get on base a ton. Two limited players. There's a reason these guys were available on waivers and didn't get some huge return at the trade deadline instead. But still two quality big league players to add some depth to a lineup and an outfield that could really use it even ahead of some of these injuries. But um currently the reds are still kind of on the outside looking in in the playoffs they're they're still right in the thick of that wild card race um right now they have a 10.8 percent chance from fan graphs to make the playoffs and just 0.1 percent of that is winning the division they're they're much more likely to get that wild card spot just because they've been pretty surpassed in the division by the brewers and the cubs but I think this is, I think this is a different situation than the Guardians. I think that's pretty pretty fair to say that this is a team that's kind of ready ahead of schedule. This is maybe more akin to the Orioles from last year, where nobody within Cincinnati, nobody within baseball expected the Reds to take this step forward this year and be anything near competitive. But instead, they've they've had some aggressive promotions and guys like Ellie De La Cruz. Even if he's cooled off a bit, he's still been an impact player for them. People didn't see that coming this year. People didn't see Spencer Steer and TJ Friedel turning a corner here, or, you know, Will Benson's even been really solid for them. And Carnacion Strand has broken his way into the big leagues. I think Matt McClain is hurt right now, but he's been really good for them. So this is a team that's ready ahead of schedule. They, just like the Orioles last year, they didn't push a bunch of chips in to try and win now because they are ahead of schedule. Unlike the Orioles last year, they didn't sell anything off, which is a point in their favor, although they didn't really have a lot to sell off anyway. There were some rumors about Jonathan India, but I don't think that was ever really going much of anywhere. Um, but yeah, so they, they make these aggressive claims just to add some length to their offense. And whether they make the playoffs or not, 
all it costs them is money, so why not? Good for them. Totally. Why not go for it? Yeah, just to give them a little bit of a shot. Yes, they are ahead of schedule. Yes, don't expect them to be this good. Like, oh, wow, they promoted that guy, and then they promoted that guy, and that guy started they, – they all started playing well. So, yeah. But, you know, they've hit them some rough spots. The plane got injured. The biggest issue, I think, is their starting rotation uh, because in a, in a perfect world – you know, they would have Lodolo and Ashcraft all coming along, and Abbott has been good, and Hunter Green, if he can get stay healthy. And so then you got a solid top four there. But those guys just have not been healthy at the same time, and they're just really strapped. So they ended up, like, going to journeyman like a Ben Lively or whoever. So it's not, you know, that's really, you know, you can't really win a championship without a rotation. I think that's the big issue there. Um, so... Um, yeah, it's a little ahead of schedule. Why not give a shot? I mean, they probably wanted Giolito just to kind of shore up that rotation, but they they were, uh, up, you know, <laughs> Cleveland got to them first, basically, you know, those pitchers. So so they took the bats. Sure, why not? It's not. It's probably not their year, but look, look out for next year. Yeah, definitely. It's Their rotation is weird. They have a lot of really interesting young pitchers that just need to click. Right. They've, they've got a lot of these guys who like you'll watch them on any given day and it's like, oh, my God, this is like one of the best pitchers in baseball. And then you'll watch them the next day and it's like, OK, he went two innings and gave up six earned runs and he got yanked because he threw 80 pitches in those two innings or whatever. Like they have a lot of it. And that's that's part of being a young pitcher. Right. You're trying to find your footing. You're trying to figure out the big league level. You can look at this team and see a rotation of. Nick Lodolo, Graham Ashcraft, Brandon Williamson, Andrew Abbott, Hunter Green. That's just like, you can look at that and see the Mariners rotation, right? You can, you can see the parallels there of like this awesome core of these five young studs who on any given day can be the best pitcher in baseball type thing. Um, but there's, there's a long ways between where they are right now and getting to that spot. And not all five of those guys are very likely to get to that spot. And so there are some other names that are involved there that, that have shown some flashes, but it's it's going to be – that's that's probably going to be their focus the rest of this season, the off season, and the first half of next season is sorting out, like, the wheat from the chaff in that rotation and figuring out what they actually have, what they need to add. I wouldn't necessarily – just partially because they're the Reds and partially because of that kind of situation – I wouldn't necessarily expect them to go sign a huge free agent starter this offseason. Um, that that could be more of a 2024 to 2025 offseason type move for them. I, I think they they might be more inclined to play it slow. Whether that's the correct move or not, I think that might be what they choose to do. Because I really like a lot of these arms. I'm sure they do too. And they would love it if they could make all all a whole rotation out of these homegrown guys work. And then they can use money to bolster other parts of their team instead. Yeah, they're probably not all going to, you know, click. I mean, on paper, you know, if they did, yeah, they got um, they got enough. But history shows us that they don't always click. You remember the, you know, the young Mets pitchers, you know, Syndergaard and DeGrom and Mats and those guys, and they never quite all got together at the same time. And, you know, some, some worked out, some didn't. Um, so... Not all of these guys were yeah, Abbott, Ashcraft, Hunter Green, Connor Phillips. You know, they're all good young arms, um, but they're not all going to be there. They're not going to be healthy. So they're probably going to need to. Yeah, I think playing it solo is fine because, you know, you got to see what you have, but you can't count on all, all, all of them to kind of hit. Um, the other thing I think is, you know, 
the the young talent that they had as of two three years ago, I'm thinking about Nick Senzel and Jose Barrero, have been passed over. So and those guys are pretty much on the outs. I think Barrero will be out of options after this year. Senzel is now a bench guy and does not look like he has much of a future here, especially with a packed lineup. So um, look for those guys probably to hit the market. Yeah, you brought up the young Mets rotation. I think the worst case scenario here is that young Braves rotation, right? Yeah. Where yeah. Luis Gohara and Sean Newcomb and even Mike Soroka and, and yeah. you know, Kyle Wright has been has kind of worked out from that group. And Max Fried has definitely worked out from that group, even though he was probably like the fifth or sixth ranked guy in that young rotation. Like he was not the one that people pegged as like, this guy's going to lead the rotation. Right. That was more of the the Gohara and Newcomb, but they obviously flamed out. There were, there were a couple other guys involved there, but that's that's kind of the thing, right? Pitching is volatile. It always mm-hmm. is, especially young pitchers. And no matter how much they dominate the minor leagues, all it takes is, whoops, this pitch doesn't play the same at the big league level, or whoops, this guy's elbow snapped and he was never the same. That's all it takes, and suddenly it, your house of cards falls down. Yep. Okay, um... There is one more waiver move, but first I kind of want to talk about just the waiver concept in general. And do you think this is good for baseball to have these types of moves? I I kind of fall toward yes with an asterisk. There were, in the wake of this news, there were a lot of people coming out like, this is ridiculous, this is a bad look for baseball, they need to make a new rule to to prevent this going forward. And I kind of like I see some of the argument there like the Angels jettisoning a quarter of their roster probably isn't a good look for them it's not a good look for baseball yeah and you do it it isn't great for the players either especially you think of a Giolito where he's been in Chicago his whole life it's already so disruptive for him to get traded to the Angels midseason even if you know you kind of saw it coming in his case it is still pretty disruptive to say, okay, I need to pack everything up. I need to move my stuff, move my family. I need to find somewhere to live in Los Angeles, whatever happens there. And then a month later, you're forcing him to do the same thing. Like that's not ideal from like a, a personal standpoint of like these players are human beings who have all these other off field considerations that go with it. And so I'm sympathetic to that. And I'm also sympathetic to the idea that like, why do the Guardians and Reds get all of these guys? Why doesn't this work like fantasy football waivers or fantasy baseball waivers where you pick a guy, cool, that's your guy, now you go to the bottom of the waiver wire list, let's give someone else a chance. I think I think if they were to make a, a change, that would be it. Because I think there is something, well, uh, on the one hand, I don't think we'll see many many occurrences like this one the Angels are kind of a rare case in, in the, the exact position they were in with regards to the luxury tax and how hard they pushed to win and how quickly it all fell apart. Like, you're not going to see that happen every year. But I don't think there's any big deal with a Harrison Bader or a Jose Cisnero or a Carlos Carrasco or a Dominic Leone changing teams in this way. I think that's fine. I think it just makes the most sense if we can spread it throughout the league. And so instead of the very worst contenders get all of the guys and it doesn't really make a difference. If it were to trickle up that list and maybe, you know, the D-backs get Matt Moore or something like that, I think that's interesting and it could kind of shake up the playoff race a little bit. 
and make September even more exciting. So that, that's my take on it. I don't. Where, where do you stand on this argument? Okay. Um, so the countervailing argument has been like to your point about like maybe you should only take one instead of like it's like Halloween. Don't just take one piece of candy. Don't take all five. And the Cleveland Guardians swoop in and take three, and the Reds take. You know. It's, so I get that. Um, but the countervailing argument is like you have to fit them in on your 40-man roster, right? So you have to cut – if you take three, you have to cut three. And that's always kind of been self-policing in the past. So the assumption there is, okay, well, it's not as easy as it looks because you got to cut three guys, and you may not want to cut those three guys. So – because then, you know, you're going to have to DFA them typically and, and lose some. Now, so so then it becomes a roster management front office decision. Is it worth it? For a month of Giolito or whoever for to lose this guy over here. Um and and so that's it's not as simple as just saying, Yeah, hey, just got three pieces of candy. It's not that simple. So I'm sort of okay with it given that that's my first point. My second point is this may have been an isolated situation, particularly with the, the Angels dumping a bunch of guys. Like I was okay with dumping, you know, with the Yankees putting hater on because like one offs here and there. You know, I think that's been done in the past, and I think that's okay. Um, so it, I got the feeling that the Angels was an isolated case. If that becomes the norm, then I think, yes, we probably have to look at that. Um, but to your third point, there's a lot of uh, – I've, I've listened to a lot of reports and, and read some things about it. A lot of people agree with you, like you should just take one and not all, all three or however many. Um, I think there's merit to that. Because I think it can be abused if, you know, especially now the Guardians didn't end up going anywhere, right? But if they had, let's say they really, let's say they used those three guys and they, they performed really well and they swept the Twins and suddenly they're back in it. And later on they make the playoffs and you could say, well, it's because they got three free guys. And is that right? I think that would have been legit. The fact that that didn't happen means it may not be that big a deal. And the fact that it was the Angels in an isolated case trying to get into the luxury tax means it may not be that big a deal. So I think it's too early to tell. In your Halloween analogy, is the Mariners getting Dominic Leone <laughs> the equivalent of the kid who takes the empty plastic bowl at the end of the night? Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, there's nothing left. Where did it all go? <laughs> I can use this somehow, I guess. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. And I think this also kind of ties into another argument we've heard of like, well, why don't we just push the trade deadline back? And I am staunchly against that. Um, totally partially, partially for a very um, selfish reason of, I enjoy having a couple of chill months at the, the back half of the season after all of the madness and, and everything that goes into running the site. We need a vacation, people. Yes. Don't, don't take away my, my August vacation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> August and September, just getting to relax, watch baseball, kind of tune out of the trade stuff and get myself back into a mindset for the off season. Beautiful. Don't, don't mess with those months for me, please. Um, but even aside from that selfish reason, like it's, it's the mentality of there's a deadline for a reason. Just, just pick a direction and go. If we did bump back the actual trade deadline to August 31st, a, the trades would be boring because nobody's given up much in terms of prospects for a month of a guy ever, you know, it's already changed so much in recent years. You know, that the idea that nobody's ever trading a Gleyber Torres for an Chapman again, like, 
the biggest chance we had at a true like massive deadline return for a rental was Otani this year. And we're never going to see something quite like that again. So we're already getting kind of boring in terms of the trade returns on, on guys that aren't just superstars under control for, for multiple years. And those trades are rare enough as it is. It would only get worse if we bumped the deadline back a month. So that's kind of argument a and argument B is like part of like, and this is one I've seen on Twitter a lot and heard in podcasts and whatever is like, part of your job as a GM or as somebody managing baseball ops is to make those tough decisions. And Hey, we only have this four month data set to go off of. Do we think our team is good enough to make this push for the last two months? And can we balance that with our next six years and and the prospects that we would be giving up in this kind of a deal and, or the prospects we would be receiving if we decided to sell, like that's your job (laughs) is to make those difficult decisions. Yeah. Moving it back a month makes it easier for you. Sure. But it makes it more boring for everyone else. So let's not do that, please. I, yeah. if anything, you know, cause the other kind of factor in here is the draft. And now that's the same week as the all-star break. And that really kind of clogs things up because front offices are so focused on the draft. Then they immediately have to shift gears to the trade deadline. No break in between. Like if anything, just move the draft back the way it was. Nobody needs it to be during all-star week. Let's, let's push it back. Let's, I've heard the idea I've heard is line it up with the college world series, which is a fun idea that works for me. Cool. Whatever. But that's the solution here is you move that side of it around. We don't totally. need to mess with the trade deadline. Totally. And make the draft a little bit more of a spectacle. I mean, that's what they were trying to do with putting in the all-star bike, but it hasn't really worked because uh, this, those two things aren't quite gelling. So, and I get that baseball draft is totally different than the NFL draft because the NFL draft, you it's a way of acquisition to replenish the players, you know? So whereas in the baseball draft is not quite the same, but still you can make it more of a, uh, a spectacle. You can make it more of a thing and you can promote the college world series at the same time. I totally agree with that. Uh, I think I'm sympathetic to the argument that yes, it short the way it is currently means, you know, Oh, there's a shorter window to pivot from, Oh, we're all looking at the draft. Oh, now we're looking at all the trade deadline. You know, oh, come on. These are adults. These are professionals. You can you can chew gum and walk at the same time. I'm sorry, but you can you can make plans. You can figure it out. You've got a whole team of people. You got all. You all have analytics departments. You can do it. <laughs> you can do it, people. So yeah, no, don't don't move the trade deadline. Yeah, agreed. Okay, um, in our usual fashion, we've gone much longer on these items than I anticipated, so let's uh, let's roll through these last few. Um, the Orioles claimed Jorge Lopez from the Marlins. This was weird. So this happened after that September 1st deadline to get guys on the roster for the playoffs, so this is a purely, like, there, there's no way Jorge Lopez is pitching in the playoffs for the Orioles. This is a, let's see if we can find something here, see if he can help us down the stretch, and hey, if we turn him back into what he was with us before, like that back into that late inning arm, then maybe we tender him a contract and bring him back for 2024. That's what this is from the Orioles side. From the Marlins side, what a disaster. Um, I mean, it's it's a low-grade disaster because we're talking about kind of middle relievers here, but it has been a mess. Um, they acquired uh, Lopez at the deadline from the Twins in exchange for Dylan Floro, and it was a one-for-one trade. The model thought the Twins got the better of that deal because Floro has been better, but kind of what you looked at was like, yes, but maybe Lopez has better upside and he has an additional year of control, so if they can get him to work, then it could be a win for Miami. Did not work. Floro hasn't been great for the Twins, but Lopez was terrible for the Marlins, and they ended up cutting him just to save like $600,000. I kind of wonder 
if this is maybe a result of like some of the fallout of Miami's other deadline decisions where they took on that entire Josh Bell contract and that was kind of near the end of the day. So you wonder if maybe that wasn't planned the whole way and it kind of came together and now they're kind of scrambling of, oh, we went we went over what ownership wanted us to spend this year. Uh, let's let's save a couple bucks here. They saved a couple bucks by trading Garrett Cooper after that deal. Like, let's maybe scrap some money together to to make our ownership happier with us. And at the same time, we're cutting a guy who hasn't worked out for us anyway. So, um, I don't want to make a ton out of this because it is a, a fairly minor move, all things considered. But it's just curious. It, it's it's a bit odd. I have nothing to add. <laughs> you made all the right points. Um, yeah, it's a bit odd. I buy the argument that, yeah, it's a little bit of a cost-cutting move at the end. I mean, Lopez was not having a great year when they traded for him, and they thought maybe we can turn him around because they have been good with relievers, but didn't take. So, okay. I mean, it's not like they gave up that much. So, yeah. I got nothing yeah. else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, last two quick hits. Uh, let's go Herman Marquez first. The Rockies extended him, giving him a two-year, $20 million deal. Uh, he had a club option for 2024. I believe it was like 17 and a half million, 16 and a half million, something like that. And he just had Tommy John surgery. So that wasn't going to be exercised. So this is just kind of their version of that make good deal that we've seen in the last 10 years or so of you get a Tommy John guy, you pay him below what he would be worth as a healthy pitcher. Cause he's rehabbing that first year. And then you'll hopefully get full value for him at a bargain for that second year. So that's what this is. Two-year, $20 million deal. I believe there's room for incentives, like a good chunk of incentives based on how well he pitches and how healthy he is in the second year of that deal. And this is a guy who's just been a Colorado lifer. I think he came over in a trade from the Rays before he was a big leaguer. And he's really had success there. Um, obviously not as much success leading up to this injury. So they're hoping that he can be back on track once he's healthy again. And yeah, that, that, that's kind of all of it from me. Um, if we look at what the model thinks of this um it has it a little bit underwater but most of that is from you know the the money he's getting i believe all of that actually is from the money that he's getting yeah. paid in 2023 where he's obviously not pitching so zero surplus but he's still getting zero, zero field value but right. he's obviously getting paid so it's only negative for 2023 but beyond that it looks like a totally fair market rate deal for who he is you're and you you know you're not really having getting him for 2024 so is he worth 2020 is he worth 20 million a year for 2025 and the answer is probably yes and we know colorado has a hard time attracting free agent pitchers and they like to stick to the guys that they do have especially if they've had success there so that's all this is the only curious part is the the way they split the years 10 and 10 which was nice of them i suppose but maybe on marquez's side i don't know if it matters that much he's going to get 20 million anyway so i suppose what the difference how, how you split it out right? you get the cards so in in other teams they they might have gone five and fifteen or four and sixteen and in this one they just did ten and ten whatever it's okay it's basically twenty million for twenty twenty five yeah and that seems fair for the type of pitcher he is and especially as kind of a hometown yeah. guy that they like why not yeah okay last bit here is another another piece of drama this one's coming out of Washington um, the whole Steven Strasburg debacle so first we heard that. Strasburg was retiring and from that we heard some reports trickling out that he was going to retire and he was still going to earn all of his money on his contract 
Um, this is because he's retiring due to extensive injuries that are impacting his day-to-day life. Like he's having trouble just living. He's having trouble opening doors and holding his kids and, and just moving after his thoracic outlet surgery. His He's never going to pitch again. That's That's not a possibility in his future. His arm is just shredded at this point. Um, and why, why risk your own health in the rest of your life and being able to hold your children? Why risk that just to probably poorly throw a baseball for the next couple of years? So he's, he's done. And the initial report that came out, like I said, was that he was going to retire and there was going to be a press conference for it and retire his number and they were going to kind of announce more of the financial details, but it seemed likely he was going to get most, if not all of the contract that he still owed the rest of the way. And then all of a sudden it fell apart. Uh, a couple days before this, the press conference was supposed to happen, we've heard some reports um, from kind of both sides of this. You know, there was one report that like, yes, the team ownership and, and GM, Mike Rizzo, they were on board with this. And then the commissioner's office, stepped in and said, hey, this is a bad precedent that you're paying him all of the money and kind of just calling it quits. Um, So that was one report which has been unsubstantiated to this point. Uh, There was another report to Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic. This is directly from Mark Lerner, so take that with a grain of salt since he has all of the reasons in the world to lie about this, um, who basically said that, like, yeah, they discussed a retirement and a retirement press conference and how the contract would be handled and things like that, but nothing was ever confirmed. Nothing was ever official. Other reports had mischaracterized things. And there was in in that note from Lerner, there was a line of, he looks forward to seeing Steven when they report to spring training next year, um, which is kind of an unnecessary jab at a guy who probably can't ever pitch again. Um, So just a really messy situation. The implications here is like, it doesn't obviously doesn't mean anything from a trade value perspective, right? This guy is fully underwater. There's like zero expectation. Like I've been saying that he's ever going to pitch again. So the 180 ish million dollars that he is owed the rest of the way, that's all sunk. Um, regardless of what happens here, there's they're not trading him. That's not, that's not a consideration here. That's not what we're talking about, but this does have roster implications where if they are like the nationals have two choices here. They either cut Strasburg, they, they DFA him, and nobody's going to claim him, and it's effectively the same as if they went forward with this retirement plan. They're going to owe him all of that money. Or they keep him on the team, but that means that they have to activate him from the injured list and carry him on the 40-man all off season. And then once they get to spring training next year, they can stick him back on the 60-day and make that 40-man spot again. But that is a spot they, that he will have to occupy the entire offseason, and as long as they continue to keep the charade up, every offseason he'll have to be put back on the 40-man. So that's, especially for a rebuilding team like the Nationals that needs to be protecting its young players from the Rule 5 draft and taking flyers on guys who hit waivers and, and trying to find the next Joey Manessis, like that kind of thing, that's a, that's a cost to them. That's a real cost of having to carry him on the 40-man. Um, so... I don't know what they're doing here. There, there's plenty of other turmoil happening in DC right now with the potential sale of the team. And Mike Rizzo is supposedly getting extended, but it's not official yet. It might've hit a snag who knows. And they've cut some scouts recently and ruffled some feathers there. Um, certainly not 
an amazingly run organization at the moment and this is just kind of the most public sign of that that they've handled this situation seemingly very very poorly with a guy who has given his entire body and his entire career to pitch for this organization oh my god where do i start all right i guess we'll start with strasburg so the initial sort of uh, report I saw was that the Nationals canceled the press conference because they were um, trying to change the terms, um, which raises a red flag because, look, you agreed to a contract. You, you agreed to pay him. Um, it was also reported that there was no insurance on this contract. So they are obligated for the full amount, which includes some deferred payments well into like 2030 or so. Um, so Strasburg is going to get paid if they decide to change the terms, quote unquote, and not pay him his full amount. You got a lawsuit in hand. You got a you got a players union issue on your hand. You're not going to get away with that, right? So what do they mean by changing the terms? Is the question. So it's a sunk cost. To your point, he's going to get paid the money he's owed regardless of what happens. So there's really no point in dragging this out if he can't even hold his kid or whatever. He's not going to pitch. So just call it. Just do the right thing and call it and let him retire with dignity, right? So I don't know what they're doing here. Uh, if they're trying to save a couple of bucks, you know, maybe they're looking at a precedent. I don't, you know, some of the details of previous cases like Chris Davis and Jacoby Ellsbury, um, they might, or David Wright, for example, maybe David Wright, like, agreed to, okay, pay me less, give me a job as a sort of a spokesperson, I'll show up at an event every now and then, I'll wave the flag at a parade, you know, something like that is sort of an, you know, honorary emeritus, you know, member of the Mets, you know, David Wright is that now, so I don't know if they wanted to work out something like that with Strasburg, and he said no, or whatever, I don't know, maybe that's all it is, but he's got to get paid what he's owed, there's no going back on that if you're the Nationals, don't try to do that, so it's just a question then of like, you know, do you just want to, you know, call a loss a loss, or do you want to drag this out? Somehow, for some reason, I don't understand, they're trying to drag this out. That's not a good look. Second part is, the, you, you referenced the Rizzo situation in Scouts. There's obviously something going on there. That, you know, one thing is Rizzo, one of his AGMs, his right-hand man, who, for, by all accounts, has worked with him for years, resigned a few days before they announced all of these guys getting fired. That is a bad look. Basically, he resigned because he didn't support it. And then Rizzo, these are all his guys. Rizzo came up from the scouting community. So that's hitting him where it hurts either. And he still doesn't have a contract. So again, I don't know what ownership is doing here, but they basically just decimated the front office and created a whole bunch of bad, bad blood with this whole Strasburg situation. I know there's issues with that whole tv deal that with masson that you know they had to work it out with the orioles and there's still things to be done there which is just about money oh but if you're going to own a team own a team and do it the right way i really really i i don't get this one at all and it's a bad look and i don't think the learners are going to come out you know looking good this way at all this is a bad look for them totally agree um I think my last point that I really have on this is one of the common responses is like, why should they pay him all of this money if he's not going to pitch for them? It's it's because all baseball contracts are guaranteed. They that's that's how baseball works. This entire amount that they have given him fully guaranteed. This isn't football where like they're going to report it as a three hundred million dollar contract and the guy's only getting thirty million of it guaranteed or whatever weird shenanigans happen in that sport. Um, 
all all of Strasburg's money when he signed that contract, guaranteed. At that time, the Nationals did have the option to purchase insurance on this contract, but it would have been prohibitively expensive for them given his injury history. We saw something similar come up with Clayton Kershaw, where he wanted to pitch in the World Baseball Classic, but the insurance would have been so expensive uh, because of his crop of injuries. And he's been far less injured in his career than Strasburg had at that point when he signed that contract. So it wasn't going to happen. Like they, they, they decided not to get the insurance. Okay, that's on them though. And this also isn't a situation where Strasburg is saying, I don't want to, you know, I could come back, but I'd have to rehab for another year. And, and that's a long process. And I've already done it so much. And, you know, I've had a good career. I want to spend time with my family. I've done everything there is to do. I won the World Series MVP. I'm just going to hang it up. That's not what he's saying. He physically is unable to pitch. Doctors have told him he, pitching would not be good for you. It would jeopardize other areas of your life. Your body is done. You are you are physically incapable so this isn't a, this isn't Strasburg walking out on the team in any way this is he's just done he he has left it all out on the field he gave it all up for the nationals and they should you know yes there's a lot of sunk money here yes that's a ton of money that you're giving up yes that contract didn't go anywhere any way close to how you expected it or wanted it to go yes that can all be true but sometimes you got to cut your losses sometimes you gotta just own it you got an exciting, phenomenal career out of Strasburg. He led your team to its only first and only World Series win in a really dramatic fashion. He took home the World Series MVP. He really carried that team. And that's all there is to it. You, you got to just take this one. You're, you're a billionaire who owns a team. Yeah. You can afford it. There's no backseats here, right? You, you, you're the ones who you're a counterparty to this contract. The Nationals and the camp and the Strasbourg camp. Both parties signed it and agreed to the terms of it. Both parties are therefore legal obligate, legally obligated to the terms. Strasbourg is, okay, I'll try to pitch. You know, Nationals is, okay, we'll pay you. If he can't pitch based on doctor's orders, it's not that he didn't try. It's just that he actually can't. So there's no, like, court of law that I would side with the Nationals. For. I'm no lawyer, but but I just don't see it that way. Um, so, you know, there's no going back on the fact you got to pay him what you agreed to pay him at the time based on what you thought, you know, the probability of him pitching was. And so now that it's changed, it doesn't change the fact that you signed the contract and still own the money. You got to do it. So, yeah. So if you want him to like show up at a parade or an old timers event every now and then, sure, fine, whatever, but don't change the money. It makes me wonder if people would perceive this differently if he was out on vacation or something and got his right arm bitten off by a shark. Like if he was like legitimately very visibly physically incapable of ever throwing a baseball again, like would that change it for people or would they still go to like, Oh, well that's on him for going swimming on vacation or something. Like I think there's some people who are just so predisposed and you can blame it on Moneyball, You can blame it on whatever you want, but they're so predisposed to side with ownership and against players in situations like these, that they would find a way no matter what. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a reasonable, um, I haven't seen the contract, but I think there's a reasonable expectation that you stay healthy and, you know, don't jump off cliffs or whatever, but, um, but yeah, don't be dumb in other words, but, but I don't think that's anything at all the case here. Um, but look, you know, the other thing is, 
you know, if you're a pending free agent, why would you sign with the Nationals if this is how they are going to treat their players who they've signed in the past? That's a bad look for them. It's not going to give them any love in the players' community. It's going to be a backlash. All of which makes me wonder if the team is, in fact, going to be sold because maybe the learners don't even care at this point. That's the only thing I can figure. Right. That's that's a good point. And I guess the last thing on this going along with that is like that that money – was gone the second you signed him to that contract, right? That's how contracts work. If that's you're right. going to guarantee somebody you're going to pay him all this money, that's you shouldn't you should consider that money gone. You consider it spent. I I have a 12-month lease for my house that I'm living in right now. I'm not going to go ahead and spend my money for April of next month's rent. I'm not going to spend that and hope I can back out of that month when I get there. No, that that's money I have to pencil in because i signed a contract that says i'm going to pay you this much for this length of time that's how that works <laughs> and the, the only thing i can maybe figure is if you know if they're selling the team they want the books to be relatively clean right and i did mention strasburg has a bunch of deferrals that go well into like the the decade right so it could be just an accounting issue it could be that okay you know those deferrals can we just pay them up front and make it a lump sum now so that you get paid but it's not going to be in 2030 it's going to be in 2024 so that we can have the clean books and we can sell the team that's the only other thing and that is probably negotiable and maybe the point of contention there is Strasburg's camp says okay give me 80 million and then the other camp says well time value of money those right, deferrals exactly. are actually worth less than that in present day and so that's a good point. A, yeah, then you're using inflation calculators, whatever. You got to agree, whatever that is. That's the only thing I can maybe see as plausible in the middle. But even so, that's something you figure you would have come to an agreement on a month ago when it first kind of came out. That and and you know, hey, maybe this is a case where something did leak earlier than it was supposed to. That happens, and that could have just thrown a wrench into all of this. Well. Why not jump on it then? You know, when this report comes out, you can say, hey, there's a recent report circulating that this is the plan. This is still up in the air. We're still negotiating. We're still working things out. Don't don't count on this happening on this date. We'll, we'll provide updates when we have them. Like, that's all it takes. And yes, it still would have been some drama about like, oh, maybe they're not going to pay him all the money. What's going on here? But at least you've nipped it in the bud. Instead, they let it get much worse they waited until two days before the press conference which makes it sound like some dramatic thing changed in the 11th hour and it's it's just a terrible look so i think that's that's what it circles back to no matter at the yeah. end of the day it's a bad look for an organization that is doing nothing to make themselves look good right now sell the team sell the team <laughs> yeah there's a there's a growing movement for a few of those uh few yeah, of those sales right. these days at least, at least the Nationals and their fans have a sale potentially on the horizon. You, you right. can't say the same to disgruntled Oakland and White Sox fans, unfortunately. And Milwaukee now. Yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> Should be a fun off season, huh, okay. John? <laughs> all right. I think that's all from me. Uh, we were joking before this that, hey, we don't have much to cover. Maybe we'll actually get it in in 90 minutes. Nope, not possible. Never. <laughs> all right. Well, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.